Section 26 of the Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 24. Letters, 1884. To Howells and Others. Cable's Great April Fool. Huck Finn in Press. Mark Twain for Cleveland. Clemens and Cable. Mark Twain had a lingering attack of the dramatic fever that winter. He made a play of The Prince and Pauper, which Howells pronounced too thin and slight and not half long enough. He made another of Tom Sawyer, and probably destroyed it, for no trace of the manuscript exists today. Howells could not join in these ventures, for he was otherwise occupied, and had sickness in his household. To W. D. Howells in Boston January 7, 84 My dear Howells, Oh, my goodness, as Jean says, you have now encountered at last the heaviest calamity that can befall an author. The scarlet fever, once domesticated, is a permanent member of the family. Money may desert you, friends forsake you, enemies grow indifferent to you, but the scarlet fever will be true to you, through thick and thin, till you be all saved or damned, down to the last one. I say these things to cheer you. The bare suggestion of scarlet fever in the family makes me shudder. I believe I would almost rather have Osgood publish a book for me. You folks have our most sincere sympathy. Oh, the intrusion of this hideous disease is an unspeakable disaster. My billiard table is stacked up with books relating to the Sandwich Islands. The walls are upholstered with scraps of paper penciled with notes drawn from them. I have saturated myself with knowledge of that unimaginably beautiful land and that most strange and fascinating people, and I have begun a story. Its hidden motive will illustrate a but little considered fact in human nature that the religious folly you are born in, you will die in. No matter what apparently reasonable religious folly may seem to have taken its place meanwhile and abolished and obliterated it. I start Bill Ragsdale at twelve years of age, and the heroine at four, in the midst of the ancient idolatrous system with its picturesque and amazing customs and superstitions, three months before the arrival of the missionaries and the erection of a shallow Christianity upon the ruins of the old paganism. Then these two will become educated Christians and highly civilized. And then I will jump fifteen years and do Ragsdale's leper business. When we come to dramatize, we can draw a deal of matter from the story, all ready to our hand. Yours ever, Mark. He never finished the Sandwich Island story which he and Howells were to dramatize later. His head filled up with other projects, such as publishing plans, reading tours, and the like. The typesetting machine does not appear in the letters of this period, but it was an important factor nevertheless. It was costing several thousand dollars a month for construction and becoming a heavy drain on Mark Twain's finances. It was necessary to recuperate, 
and the anxiety for a profitable play or some other adventure that would bring a quick and generous return grew out of this need clemens had established charles l webster his nephew by marriage in a new york office as selling agent for the mississippi book and for his plays he was also planning to let webster publish the new book huck finn george w cable had proven his ability as a reader and clemens saw possibilities in a reading combination which was first planned to include aldrich and howells and a private car but aldrich and howells did not warm to the idea and the car was eliminated from the plan cable came to visit clemens in hartford and was taken with the mumps so that the reading trip was postponed the fortunes of the seller's play were most uncertain and becoming daily more doubtful in february howells wrote if you have got any comfort in regard to our play i wish you would heave it into my bosom cable recovered in time and out of gratitude planned a great april fool surprise for his host he was a systematic man and did it in his usual thorough way he sent a private and confidential suggestion to a hundred and fifty of mark twain's friends and admirers nearly all distinguished literary men the suggestion was that each one of them should send a request for mark twain's autograph timing it so that it would arrive on the first of april all seemed to have responded mark twain's writing table on april fool morning was heaped with letters asking in every ridiculous fashion for his valuable autograph the one from aldrich was a fair sample he wrote i am making a collection of autographs of our distinguished writers and having read one of your works gabriel convoy i would like to add your name to the list of course the joke in this was that gabriel convoy was by bret hart who by this time was thoroughly detested by mark twain the first one or two of the letters puzzled the victim then he comprehended the size and character of the joke and entered into it thoroughly one of the letters was from bloodgood h cutter the poet lariat of innocence abroad cutter of course wrote in poetry that is to say doggerel mark twain's april fool was a most pleasant one rhymed letter by bloodgood h cutter to mark twain little neck long island long island farmer to his friend and pilgrim brother samuel l clemens esq friends suggest in each one's behalf to write and ask your autograph to refuse that i will not do after the long voyage had with you that was a memorable time you wrote in prose i wrote in rhyme to describe the wonders of each place and the queer customs of each race that is in my memory yet for while i live i'll not forget i often think of that affair and the many that were with us there as your friends think it for the best i ask your autograph with the rest hoping you will it to me send twill please and cheer your dear old friend yours truly bloodgood h cutter to w d howes in boston hartford april eight eighty four my dear howells it took my breath away and i haven't recovered it yet entirely 
I mean the generosity of your proposal to read the proofs of Huck Finn. Now, if you mean it, old man, if you are in earnest, proceed, in God's name, and be by me forever blessed. I cannot conceive of a rational man deliberately piling such an atrocious job upon himself. But if there is such a man, and you be that man, why then pile it on. It will cost me a pang every time I think of it. But this anguish will be angibus to me in the joy and comfort I shall get out of the not having to read the verfluctita proofs myself. But if you have repented of your augenblichlicher Torpsucht and got back to calm, cold reason again, I won't hold you to it unless I find I've got you down in writing somewhere. Here, I would not read the proof of one of my books for any fair and reasonable sum, whatever, if I could get out of it. The proof reading on the Prince and the Pauper cost me the last rags of my religion. M. Howells had written that he would be glad to help out in the reading of the proofs of Huck Finn, which Book Webster by this time had in hand. Replying to Clemens' eager and grateful acceptance now, he wrote, It is all perfectly true about the generosity, unless I am going to read your proofs from one of the shabby motives which I always find at the bottom of my soul if I examine it. A characteristic utterance, though we may be permitted to believe that his shabby motives were fewer and less shabby than those of mankind in general. The proofs which Howells was reading pleased him mightily. Once, during the summer, he wrote, If I had written half as good a book as Huck Finn, I shouldn't ask anything better than to read the proofs. Even as it is, I don't. So send them on. They will always find me somewhere. This was the summer of the Blaine-Cleveland campaign. Mark Twain, in company with many other leading men, had mugwumped and was supporting Cleveland. From the next letter we gather something of the aspects of that memorable campaign, which was one of scandal and vituperation. We learn, too, that the young sculptor Carl Gerhardt, having completed a three-year study in Paris, had returned to America a qualified artist. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, August 21, 84. My dear Howells, this presidential campaign is too delicious for anything. Isn't human nature the most consummate sham and lie that was ever invented? Isn't man a creature to be ashamed of in pretty much all his aspects? Man, know thyself, and then thou wilt despise thyself to a dead moral certainty. Take three quite good specimens, Harley, Warner, and Charlie Clark. Even I do not loathe Blaine more than they do. Yet Harley is howling for Blaine, Warner and Clark are eating their daily crow in the paper for him, and all three will vote for him. Old stultification, where is thy sting? Old slave, where is thy hickory? I suppose you heard how a marble monument for which St. Gaudens was pecuniarily responsible burned down in Hartford the other day, uninsured. For who in the world would ever think of insuring a marble shaft in a cemetery against a fire, and left St. Gaudens out of pocket $15,000? It was a bad day for artists, 
Gerhardt finished my bust that day, and the work was pronounced admirable by all the kin and friends. But in putting it in plaster, or rather taking it out, next day, it got ruined. It was four or five weeks' hard work gone to the dogs. The news flew, and everybody on the farm flocked to the arbor and grouped themselves about the wreck in a profound and moving silence. The farm help, the colored servants, the German nurse, the children, everybody. A silence interrupted at wide intervals by absent-minded ejaculations rising from unconscious breasts as the whole size of the disaster gradually worked its way home to the realization of one spirit after another. Some burst out with one thing, some another. The German nurse put up her hands and said, Oh, schade, oh, schrecklich. But Gerhardt said nothing, or almost that. He couldn't word it, I suppose. But he went to work, and by dark had everything thoroughly well under way for a fresh start in the morning, and in three days' time had built a new bust which was a trifle better than the old one, and tomorrow we shall put the finishing touches on it, and it will be about as good as one as nearly anybody can make. Yours ever, Mark. If you run across anybody who wants a bust, be sure and recommend Gerhardt on my say-so. But Howells was determinately for Blaine. I shall vote for Blaine, he replied. I do not believe he is guilty of the things they accuse him of, and I know they are not proved against him. As for Cleveland, his private life may be no worse than that of most men. But as an enemy of that contemptible, hypocritical, lopsided morality which says a woman shall suffer all the shame of unchastity and a man none, I want to see him destroyed politically by his past. The men who defend him would take their wives to the White House if he were president, but if he married his concubine, made her an honest woman, they would not go near him. I can't stand that. Certainly this was sound logic in that day, at least, but it left Clemens far from satisfied. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, September 17, 84. My dear Howells, Somehow I can't seem to rest quite under the idea of your voting for Blaine. I believe you said something about the country and the party. Certainly allegiance to these is well, but as certainly a man's first duty is to his own conscience and honor. The party, or the country, comes second to that, and never first. I don't ask you to vote at all. I only urge you to not soil yourself by voting for Blaine. When you wrote before, you were able to say the charges against him were not proven. But you know now that they are proven, and it seems to me that that bars you and all other honest and honorable men who are independently situated from voting for him. It is not necessary to vote for Cleveland. The only necessary thing to do, as I understand it, is that a man shall keep himself clean by withholding his vote for an improper man, even though the party and the country go to destruction in consequence. It is not parties that make or save countries, or that build them to greatness. It is clean men, clean ordinary citizens, rank and file, the masses. 
clean masses are not made by individuals standing back till the rest become clean as i said before i think a man's first duty is to his own honor not to his country and not to his party don't be offended i mean no offense i am not so concerned about the rest of the nation but well good-bye yours ever mark there does not appear to be any further discussion of the matter between howells and clemens their letters for a time contain no suggestion of politics perhaps mark twain's own political conscience was not entirely clear in his repudiation of his party at least we may believe from his next letter that his cleveland enthusiasm was qualified by a willingness to support a republican who would command his admiration and honor the idea of an eleventh-hour nomination was rather startling whatever its motive to mr pierce in boston hartford october twenty two eighty four my dear mr pierce you know as well as i do that the reason the majority of republicans are going to vote for blaine is because they feel that they cannot help themselves do not you believe that if mr edmonds would consent to run for president on the independent ticket even at this late date he might be elected well if he wouldn't consent but should even strenuously protest and say he wouldn't serve if elected isn't it still wise and fair to nominate him and vote for him since his protest would relieve him from all responsibility and he couldn't surely find fault with people for forcing a compliment upon him and do not you believe that his name thus compulsorily placed at the head of the independent column would work absolutely certain defeat to blaine and save the country's honor politicians often carry a victory by springing some disgraceful and rascally mine under the feet of the adversary at the eleventh hour would it not be wholesome to vary this thing for once and spring as formidable a mine of a better sort under the enemy's works if edmund's name were put up i would vote for him in the teeth of all the protesting and blaspheming he could do in a month and there are lots of others who would do likewise if this notion is not a foolish and wicked one won't you just consult with some chief independence and see if they won't call a sudden convention and whoop the thing through to nominate edmonds the first of november would be soon enough wouldn't it with kindest regards to you and the aldriches yours truly s l clemens clemens and cable set out on their reading tour in november they were a curiously assorted pair cable was of orthodox religion exact as to habits neat prim all that clemens was not in the beginning cable undertook to read the bible aloud to clemens each evening but this part of the day's program was presently omitted by request if they spent sunday in a town cable was up bright and early visiting the various churches and sunday schools while mark twain remained at the hotel in bed reading or asleep End of section 26. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.